My dad used to work for FedEx, so every tax season I'm reminded of the question that brought down Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy contestant who won 74 games in a row before he got the answer, most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white-collar employees work only four months a year. Jennings said, what is FedEx? The real answer was H&R Block. On today's episode, we learn five actually interesting facts about doing your taxes from certified public accountant and comedian Greg Kite. We also learn how to pimp your Wi-Fi, Roy Berenson stops by with more vocabulary tips, and the testing table goes on a makeshift camping trip. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and if you keep listening to the most useful podcast ever, maybe you can be the next Jeopardy! Super Contestant. We have with us here Greg Kite, who is a CPA and comedian uh, from Provo, Utah. Welcome, Greg. Thanks so much. I think this is one of the few times an accountant has ever been associated with anything that's called popular. (laughs) I mean, I will say I actually have not done my taxes yet, and it's starting to stress me out. I hate them so much. We're going to play a little game called Five Actually Fun Things You Could Know About Taxes. I've got them. You want me just to start slugging away? Go for it. Okay. You've got to be careful. If you get on the wheel of fortune, you could end up going broke if you win a big prize. Oh, really? We all remember back to when Survivor was actually relevant and interesting. And in the first season, the guy who won was a man named Richard Hatch. He won his million dollars, but he ended up going to jail because you're still expected to pay taxes. That's still income. If you win a big cash prize, you have to set aside about how you should think about half of it for state and federal income taxes. Mm-hmm. But... What makes a win on the Wheel of Fortune so different is you're on the Wheel of Fortune and you win like a $15,000 dream vacation, a hotel and airfare included, all this stuff. And you go ahead and you take that. The show Wheel of Fortune is required to report the IRS that you won a $15,000 prize on their show. And you are required, even though it's not cash, you're still required to pay the taxes the income tax on whatever prize you win. Oh, ouch. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what makes it even harder is that the Wheel of Fortune has an interest of using not not what you could have gotten that vacation for, but they want to show the full pop price for oh. what that vacation would have uh-huh. been. Because that makes it, oh my gosh, they just won this $15,000 vacation. Well, if you had gone on Priceline and done all this stuff and trying to, you know, found the deal, maybe you could have gotten that exact same vacation for half as much. You had to pay 5000 bucks for your $7,500 vacation that you won for free. Right. You might as well just not go on Wheel of Fortune and just buy things. Exactly. There you go. Interesting tax fact number one. Are you ready <laughs> for number two? Um, I am, yeah. Seems like every year uh, I read something in the in the accounting press where where somebody wants to uh, try to deduct a boob job for <laughs> business purposes. Basically, if you get a boob job, you can't uh, deduct that as a business expense. The place where that gets into some weird territory, though, is like if you're out job seeking and you get to print off your resumes, you could deduct that as a business expense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people are going, well, I lost my job and I got a breast augmentation because I felt like that would help my chances as a candidate and that's why I got it still you can't do it because generally uh, the IRS says anything that deals with your personal appearance your your health or your sense of well-being that's personal expense not deductible however under strange circumstances you can deduct a boob job 
for a business expense, and that goes back to a case from 1994, Hess versus the IRS commissioner. Uh, Ms., Mrs. Hess, who actually represented herself in tax court, was an exotic dancer. She uh, increased her breast size up to a 56N. Uh, what? And yeah, what does that even I, I don't. Mean? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> but but she was able to deduct her boob job as a business expense because, because she was an exotic dancer. No, no, no. Not because she was an exotic dancer. Because again, that's one of the places that you do see these people trying to contest the oh, boob job. The reason she was able to do it is she went so extreme that she was able to argue her case that no normal person would ever have boobs that big. And she was able to she was able to build an entire business case. Wow. All right. The next one has to do with gambling. Any kind of gambling, whether that's lottery tickets, whether that's your trip to Vegas, if that was your March Madness office pool. Let's say you go to Las Vegas. You win ten thousand dollars on the slot machine. They're gonna give you the WTD for winning your ten thousand dollars on the slot machine. However, the IRS does allow you to deduct from that all of your other gambling losses for the entire year. So if you go to Vegas and you put in $7,000 worth of nickels in the nickel slot to get that one big payoff that's the $10,000, you are only going to be taxed on the difference. You're only going to be taxed wow. on the $3,000 difference. But that has created a secondary market for losing lottery tickets. You've got people that do scratch and wins and Powerball every day, every week, and they're just sitting on a stack of loser lottery tickets. Let's say I spent $2 a week on Powerball. At the end of the year, I'd have $104. Let's, let's say I had horrible luck and they're all losers. I can't deduct my $104 because I had no winnings to deduct them against. You can go on eBay and you can sell your losing lottery tickets to somebody who did have a big gambling wow. win. You're probably going to sell them for you know pennies on the dollar, but still. Wait, and is that, is that, that legal? No, it's not at all. <laughs> it's not at all. But, but here's the thing. The things, it, it's illegal to sell your trash because that's basically what you're doing. Uh-huh. It's, it's illegal to buy someone else's trash. What's illegal is, you know, let's say I bought $1,000 worth of losing tickets. I can't say that I lost that money gambling myself because it wasn't my money that I spent losing. So that's a really weird fact about what the tax code has done in these secondary markets that it's created. So... There's that one. Crazy. Okay. Give me another one. Hit me with another one. Okay. Non-cash charitable donations. On any given year, you can claim that you've given up to $250 in non-cash donations to a charity. So what that means is you did spring cleaning. You took a box of stuff to the Salvation Army. Uh, you don't even need a receipt. You can just on your tax return say, I, I gave $250 of my junk to the, to the Salvation Army, and the IRS is going to go, okay, they don't even require any documentation for that. Between $250 and $500, they require written communication from the qualified organization. So it's going to have their name. It's going to say that you did not receive any goods or services for giving them your crap, and it's going to show the dollar value of what you gave them. But here's what makes that nuts. You have to get above $500 where you start getting into the land where you have to have some sort of appraisal or some sort of you know third party that's valuing whatever you donated to this to this charity. So you go to the DI, you could give them a shoe, and the guy's going to say, "Do you want a receipt for that?" You say yes, 
because usually when they give you the receipt, you get to fill in the value of what you think your contribution was worth. Mm-hmm. You've been $480 for that shoe, and now you have your documents in line. And, and as a and matter of fact, totally it's legal. It's, it's total, well, and again. It, it's, <laughs> it's maybe not a good thing to do, like I'm morally. Say, right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're in this thing where it's like legal, ethical, moral, because technically, you know, the IRS, the auditors, they have to come to you and they have to be able to say, here's what the IRS requires. Did you comply with those requirements? Is it legal? I'm going to say no, because that shoe is not worth $480. Right. Wow. Wow. I got one more. What the IRS requires that you report and pay taxes on any illegal income that you've incurred during the year. So if I'm a contract killer, if I'm a drug dealer, anything like that, I have to report my income from these illegal sources on my taxes. Otherwise, I can go to jail for not doing my taxes. So wait, I have a question. If you report that you're a hitman and you made all your money from contract killing, will the IRS then report you to someone else? That's an interesting question, because at the bottom of your 1040, it does ask you what you do for a living. So if you're a contract killer, you're probably going to use some sort of euphemism for that, like, uh, (laughs) you know, meat engineer. I don't know what it would be, but something like that. So generally, the way this works out is that the FBI or some law enforcement agency is after you for crimes that they're almost sure that you've committed. Mm-hmm. They'll contact the IRS and they'll look at your records and see is there anything sticky, is there anything we can go after this guy for in terms of his taxes, even though we're really after this guy for contract billing or drug dealing or something like right. that. So if you're right. a bad Where dude, so if you're a bad dude, the moral is pay your taxes and pretend you did something else. Yeah, and that's where money laundering comes in. If you're a really good criminal, you have a money laundering scheme set up whereby not only it seems like you earned that money from a legitimate source, but you're dotting all your I's and crossing every single T when it comes to taxes. So you look like you are the most patriotic, country-loving, tax-paying American that's, that's ever been. We have Alex George with us here, and we are not going to be making fun of your desk this time. I'm relieved to hear. Thank you. I'm sure sure you're excited. So I heard that you have a solution for crappy Wi-Fi spots in your apartment. Right. Actually, I had this set up at my mom's place. Her place has brick walls, and basically just the laws of physics mean that you can't get Wi-Fi signals through these things. There are are all these properties about different bandwidths and all that, but generally Wi-Fi sucks and has sucked for a long time. It doesn't get a lot of range. Have you ever seen like somebody's Wi-Fi that says 5 gigahertz or 2.4 gigahertz? That just has to do with the wavelength. And the idea is that one gets further but has less strength. One's closer and has more strength. All this stuff is something that no average consumer should have to really worry about. This new company, Eero, and this other company, Lumo, they're all doing these things where they make super easy to set up Wi-Fi routers. And specifically, the idea is they give you multiple of them. And they talk to each other so that wherever you roam around in your house, it'll actually send the signal to the one that's closest to you to give you the strongest signal. And it works. 
Wow. Um, why has this taken so long? I feel like Wi-Fi routers are, they're just like dinosaurs. I, we, do you rent the router that you have at your apartment? Um, I, well, I just moved, so I don't, I haven't gotten one yet, but uh, at, the, at my last place I did, yes. Yeah, it's, they have this kind of constraint on it like that. You're kind of subject to Comcast or to Time Warner, whatever, whoever you have. If you have Google Fiber where you are, that's awesome. But yeah, generally you just have to get these really old antiquated machines. And so what these guys have done is they have these multiple hubs and then they talk to each other and they relay the signal. Now you can do this, you can just buy another router, like a $90 router is actually really worth it. You can buy two routers and set up so they repeat each other and they get to different sections of the house because one router doesn't really do a good job of getting a signal in every direction. But if the thing that they can't do is that every time you move around, you have to re log in or you have to choose the new Wi-Fi network that's close to you. So what these things do is they say, okay, you're over towards the bedroom. We have another router over there. And that one is going to give you a lot better signal if you want to stream on your iPad in bed. We'll send all the signal over there and it will actually come through and be really crisp. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Wait, and uh, and so are these, how many do you get? So Eero, the first company that's doing this, you can buy a pack of three. That's 500 bucks. This sounds like a ton of money, especially when you can spend 200 and kind of do the same thing. But because it's got it's got Bluetooth and it's just got an app, I, it setup took probably 45 seconds tops, and it's actually like something I, you could imagine anybody really kind of figuring out. Right, and you have to drill holes in your walls, or like do that cable thing where you like run it up the wall and over the door and all that kind of thing. No, none of that. That's okay. kind of what makes sense. The only thing you really have to do is kind of just accept the physics of having the. Routers kind of have to see each other. That means they have to kind of be in line of sight. But you can place them around so they can kind of they can communicate with each other. But the thing that they did that was pretty smart was rather than make it this kind of blinking light um, spaceship-looking thing that everybody else does, they're these kind of you know half-circle, really pleasant-looking white little modules. You actually have to have them out on your countertop to make them work, and they have to be kind of conspicuous. But they got designers from Nest, from Apple, and guys who just really know what they're doing with... Um, industrial design, and they're you kind of they just fade into the background when you have them out for a while. And the I mean the part is again it's just that it automatically knows where you are and actually knows how to get you stuff. Founder of it explains to me how no one really built anything for streaming video, and that's what we all do now, mm-hmm. and that's what it's actually capable of handling. And it's really worth it. It's it's again 500 bucks is steep. You could kind of replicate it, but have it be slight pain in the ass for about 200 bucks less if you buy two TP-Link routers. But for a $500 three-pack and to never have to worry about this again and have it be pretty future-proof, I'm kind of sold. Right. Okay. So you can life hack it, but don't, is what you're saying. Yeah, when DIY is not the preferable option. Roy Berenson is here, and he's going to give us another vocabulary lesson. So the first question is, uh, what is the difference between sharpening and honing? That's actually a very good question, Jackie. Put it this way, sharpening is a general term to make something sharp. That makes sense. (laughs) Right, obviously. But whether you grind it sharp, you file it sharp, you make it sharp. Something is dull, you make it sharp. Honing is a specific step within the sharpening family. And it's it's an abrasive process that implies use of sharpening stone or some other form of abrasive particle on a backer. When you file something sharp, that's called filing. 
when you use a sharpening stone or um, something called a wet stone or even a slip stone, mm -hmm. that's honing. Honing is also, by the way, usually the last step for, for making something really sharp. Oh, okay. Is that why you'd say you'd like hone in on something because it's like really? Well, and that's that's also another that that gets to grammar. Some people maintain that the correct version of that is home in, like mm. uh, like a homing pigeon, like to close in on something, and that honing hone in is actually a misstatement. Oh, okay. So honing, yeah, normally you do that uh, with a cutting fluid of some kind, whether it's oil, whether it's water, and you have an abrasive stone uh, or an abrasive surface of some kind, and that's the f and even honing can be done in stages from rough honing to fine honing, which is actually polished, like with a plain iron or a chisel, can actually put a mirror-like polish on it. And that's like a surgically sharp edge at that point. It's, it's almost mirror-like. Okay. All right, so now I got a harder one for you. Uh, what is the difference between particle board, press board, and MDF? And what is MDF? Because I don't. Yeah. This came from yeah. this came from Peter Martin, and I don't even know what that is. <laughs> well, they're all there. Let's put it this way: they're all cousins in the in the panel family. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is my cousin particle board panel. <laughs> That's right. MDF, by the way, is medium density fiber board. Okay. Um, what happens when they they take uh, a log? They they cut a tree down, and some of it gets wasted. Usually the um, the branches are left on the forest floor to decompose and help regenerate the forest and also provide uh, habitat, you know, or shelter for animals. Mm -hmm. The log itself can go to a sawmill and be sawn into planks. But what happens to the rest of it? So you've got sawdust mm -hmm. produced from sawing. You've got wood bark. And in some cases, they, they may take, if it's a relatively low-quality log, they may just take the whole thing and feed it into a grinder. So out of that material stream comes processes to convert it into panels, which have properties that we find useful. Uh, particle board is a coarser made from very coarse chips of wood. In the most coarse case, that's called oriented strand board. And you've probably seen this like salad bowls. That, that are made from like these, like almost flakes of wood. Have I you, think maybe, yeah, I think I, I have. They're, oh, they're, I've totally seen this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like thin, like stri like uh, as if you had um, shaved a carrot. Yes, exactly. Okay. That, that's, and, and that's, uh, yeah, consider the saw log as a carrot. I okay, mean, it's, and that's how you get it. Yeah, so they, they what, what you do with these shavings or particles is in some cases you bind them with uh, an adhesive, mm -hmm. and you press them into something, a panel. In other cases, it doesn't actually require any adhesive because there's lignin, which is already holding the wood fibers together, and they separate the its glue, mm -hmm. the natural mm -hmm. glue. So the lignin is separated out and then recombined, oh. you know, in the process. Uh -huh. So at the very coarse end of that, you have particle board, at the mid-range, you have medium-density fiber board, or MDF, okay. where there are extremely fine particles. You have press board. It gets a little bit tricky there also 
Jackie, because the particles are so fine between MDF and press board, it, it's hard to uh, necessarily draw a distinction. Mm-hmm. Press board is also much thinner. Okay. And it's basically just like sawdust glued together yeah, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you could call it that. Yeah. Sawdust glued together. And, you know, they, they apply. <laughs> I, wish they had, I wish they had like real, like those kind of names in, in uh, hardware stores. I think I'd get along really well. I'll make my own hardware store. And hone in on it, you know. Um. <laughs> uh, no, I think, they, I think they should home in on it. Right, right. <laughs> and here with a shop note is Kevin Dupsick. So at home you might have a drawer where the drawer pull spins. When you try to pull the drawer open, it just spins loose. What you can do is just take a small tack or nail, and on the inside of the drawer you'll see the screw, which is in the center of the drawer pull. You just drive the nail into the drawer pull off-center next to the screw, and that stops it from spinning. Today in our testing table, we are going to pretend to be camping, which isn't quite as fun as camping for real because uh, we're in an all-white room with some microphones and there are no fires. It echoes like the wild. It Yeah, it echoes just like the Ooh, wild. No. <laughs> uh, Kevin Dupsick is here with uh, some coffee that I think we're going to make. And also, you just got back from Hawaii. Yeah, I went to Hawaii with my brother and... Uh, aloha. On... You, you say aloha. <laughs> Miss, that's Matt, Matt that one. That's Maculay, our, uh, our market and gear editor, who's also here and has already started making fun of Kevin. Yeah. So, <laughs> as, as people uh, want to do around it's, here. It happens a lot, even when I'm not the, in my persona as the curious idiot. <laughs> um, I went camping with my brother while we were in Hawaii, and kind of the challenge was that we had to get camping gear out there, just like our normal flights. So it had to be like really small, light stuff. So no- normally this is for like hardcore backpackers. We're not that, but we kind of needed that level of like packs down, doesn't weigh anything to put in a, you know, a checked bag and then carry on our backs when we were in Hawaii. Right. So you collected a bunch of stuff, and among them was this coffee. Yeah. So this coffee, it's called Kuju Coffee. But the idea is uh, to be able to make, like, pretty good pour-over coffee, but, like, when you're out on the trail. Or, actually, this is relevant for us. They say, really, you could use this anywhere, including the office. Hey. Um, but the idea is... We're not is, in the office. We're at the campground right now. Right. So this comes in like a sealed, uh, each serving comes sealed in an individual pack. And when you open it, inside there's pre-ground coffee beans that are inside like a pouch made of coffee filter material. And then each pouch has these tabs on the side so you can set it over whatever cup you have, whether you brought like tin mugs or, you know, a water bottle with a wide enough mouth. Yeah. It's like paper dolls. Yeah, so you set it inside a mug, and then you open the top of the pouch, and then you pour water in hot water like a pour... There's two roasts, a dark roast and a medium roast, and I guess we can try making both of them while we discuss the rest of our, our camping trip. Can I say already, if this is for camping, this seems like a lot of packing material. Yeah, so they actually, uh, so they kickstarted this, right? And one of the big comments from Kickstarter backers was that they wanted everything to be compostable because the, yeah. the inner pouch is compostable, but the outer package is aluminum foil or something. So they're actually working on making new packaging that's completely compostable so you could just bury it or something. That's great. So what stage is it? You said it's kickstarted. It's available they now? They kickstarted, yeah. So now anybody can buy it. The kickstarting phase is passed. Now they just sell their website. So you buy them in 10 packs, so 10 individual servings, and it's $20. So it's like 2 bucks a cup. Okay. It's less than you'd pay at Starbucks, which yeah, doesn't exist on the trail. But you pour it like a normal pour-over where you you know, you know pour it until you fill up the... Can I say, there is no such thing as normal pour-over. Like, pour-over, I find so infuriating. That's true. And this idea of like having to do this at a campsite kind of already makes me angry. But... 
Wait, wait, wait. Well, okay, ex- explain. By doing this, what Matt means is pouring from a cup yeah, a few times. This doesn't seem that difficult, but uh, how would you, as a non-coffee drinker, I'm, I'm really out of my depth here. What would you, when you have gone camping, what do you normally drink in terms of coffee? Just instant? Uh, Isn't that the same as what you're doing, kind of? Kind of. I, no, but instant, you just, you have boiling water, you throw it in. and it's Instant's sort of like, like a powder you mix yeah, in. Yeah, and yeah right. I mean, there's a sort of like a nostalgic taste to doing so, like drinking it that way. But, like, if you're just, I don't know, I'm, like, sort of a classic car camping. You just, like, make it on a percolator all over your Coleman stove. And, like, that is the best tasting stuff in the world. Because it kind of gets, like, the campfire smell in it. Whereas this is just, like, feels like, yeah, like, bougie. So while we're waiting for this to percolate. uh, Not even percolate. Just drip drip, through a filter. Drip through the filter while we're waiting for this to happen. How long? First of all, how long is it supposed to take? Uh, So basically they say to to pour the water through, like, in four or five sort of... uh, four or five doses uh-huh. of water. I mean, once it all drips through, you can drink it. Yeah. I mean, I think mine's just about done. Okay. Did you use anything else cool on this trip? Were you, like, super outfitted? Yeah. So so the big one, like I was saying, I was trying to figure out how I was going to get a tent out there. Um, so I actually I actually asked Matt for advice, and I was just like, look, I need something that I can put in a in a check bag. Because also we island hopped, so it was like it wasn't like I was going to have to pay for a carry-on one time if I did this. I was going to have to pay for, like, five carry-ons. Right. So I got uh, a tent from this company called Big Agnes. The tent was called the Copper Spur UL3 um, Mountain Glow. So it's an ultralight backpacking tent. It's a three-person tent. I wanted just a bigger tent because my brother is like 6'3", and I'm not a tiny person, and we fit in this thing comfortably. I was really impressed. Um, But the cool thing is this Mountain Glow is something new they've introduced, and there's like an LED strip built into the tent itself. And then it takes three AAAs, and there's like a small remote. But everything just can just pack up with the tent, so you don't have to do anything different. You don't have to worry about like breaking it or bending it. And the light is kind of the perfect brightness. So it's like I read a book before I went to sleep, but it wasn't so bright that it like ruined being able to like look at the stars at night like, oh, through, the, through the tent. And yeah. it has two brightnesses also. So like the brighter of the two settings, you don't lose your adjustment to nighttime. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. The tent weighs just over four pounds. And I easily folded up, put it in my backpack while I was hiking. And I didn't take like a camping backpack. I took kind of like a normal backpack. And I still had room for food and a little bit of extra clothing, water bottle, all that stuff. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How like, how many nights did you do? We were only there, we were only overnight one night. Yeah. Um, so we took enough food to be, the trail was an 11-mile trail. So we actually brought kind of a lot of food because it was, it was a rough hike. And uh, yeah, it was no problem at all. It was also easy to set up. I, I had never owned a backpacking tent before. I've always done car camping. And mm-hmm. I was kind of worried that like it was going to be super light, but like there was going to be some big like catch with convenience. But I think this was an easier tent to set up than any other tent I've ever owned. Yeah, I have on good authority that Big Agnes is like the preferred tent people for guys who do motorcycle trekking chips just because like oh. it packs down so small. And those guys are going like long days journeys and like they don't have that much room for cargo. Yeah, I was really impressed. The other cool thing is... Um, because it's really thin, because it's so light, like the material's really thin, you can buy a footprint separately, which is kind of just like a tarp that's sized to match the tent mm-hmm. exactly to make the bottom a little bit thicker. But the cool thing about that is that because the footprint is matched to the size of the tent, if you're someplace where you're not worried about you know bugs or it's not going to rain or something, you can actually, instead of setting up the whole tent, you can set up just the footprint and then the rain fly and have kind of like an open air tent to sleep in. Oh. Um, which was like a cool added bonus to buying the separate piece just to make the bottom a little bit sturdier. What'd you wear while you were hiking? I just wore like a pair of shorts that I had and a, like a, a white t-shirt. And, oh man, they were, they ended up in bad shape. Yeah. So pretty bad stink afterward. Oh yeah, it was, dis- it was disgusting. And like, the, were they like, these were like gym shorts for like synthetic performance wear? 
Uh, no, this was cotton. Cotton. So like cotton on both ends. Yeah, so I kept those, but everything, all the other clothes I was wearing during the cycling trip are now in the trash somewhere. Okay. Hopefully have been incinerated. My recommendation to you would have been to, if you're going to do like sort of that performance light packing, easy absorbing, sweat absorbing stuff, which kind of would have prevented you know a lot of the stink from getting there in the first place but that stuff can also get like real stinky too the bacteria that causes those odors like get trapped in those fibers forever and so once you kind of get them on again you kind of like get those bacteria going again and like that smell comes right back oh i didn't know that. yeah so there's this company called polygene i just got introduced them the other day but it's sort of amazing i have a pair of socks of them and this is the challenge i kind of tested with them is to like just wear them for like a week straight and they won't stink because they're washed with, it's like the special wash, it's like half silver, half uh, like salt that just gets embedded into the clothes. Mm -hmm. So it's not really like a film or like anything that they're putting on it that's gonna like lose its power over time. And it basically just prevents all this, you know, like microbial stuff from growing in within your clothes and uh, it won't stink. So what was cool is they showed me this hockey glove. I mean, who knows? Hockey gloves like, are, uh, hockey like, pads yeah, are notorious yeah. for smelling yeah. really gross. Right? And they had one that had been worn for like an entire like six week, you know, uh, rec season. And it was like treated with this stuff. Did not stink. It's, oh, it was amazing. Blew my mind. Did they so, make you smell it? Were they like smell this hockey pad? They, they was smell this glove. Ugh. I know. And then they had another one like in a bin that was like, we didn't treat this one. And like, we don't want to expose it to you. So who knows if they were like yanking my chain, but I don't know if I can say that. But like, <laughs> isn't that the name of the album in Spinal Tap? Probably. Yankee smell my the glove. Oh, smell, smell the glove. glove. Don't they want to name it that? And then like the, the label won't let them. Sorry. I know it's a digression, but I couldn't. It's like when you said that, something in my brain. Turned. Smell this glove. Yeah. No, but so it's. I mean, it's a cool way to. And it's sort of like it's something that they work with a ton of brands. Like you know, Patagonia uh, uses it. Uh, uh, L.O. Bean has product with it. So does Reebok. So you buy the product treated with it, or is it like something you wash it with? You buy the product treated with it. So, I mean, next time you're out shopping for, like, your, your gear, look for something with the Polygene label on it. Okay, and so like, it's like Teflon, yeah, where different yeah. companies are manufacturing. Right, okay. and it might cost you a few bucks more, but you know that it's going to last you, at least smell-wise, a lot longer. Well, and that's that would be great for this, because the big problem with this is that I had spent a week in Hawaii, like, toting my stuff around, and the hike was, like, day two or three. So, we just had these, like, horrible, horrible clothes with us Ooh. for five more days and on a plane. So you were the worst people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were those monsters. Yeah. Do you have any tips for... This was actually an unexpected big problem that were unexpected to me. What's the best way to have a water bottle that doesn't take up tons of space when you're not... When it's not full of water? Uh, like, bladder you, bladder systems are probably the best. That's your... Okay. Yeah. I, like, I swear by them. I've if seen I collapsible could, water bottles, too, and those seem really annoying to me. Uh, there are a couple that make them well enough where the way they collapse like while you're filling them like hydropack makes a good one where um like it won't really like if you're trying to fill it it's like, like some will like fall down on you or yeah. like they just sort of seem like you're just like holding like a bag of water hydropack sort of feels firm and collapses well um i mean they just like the classic analogy strap to the side works but yeah i mean get a bladder system because they're great well let's try this coffee while it's hot or hot-ish i'm already grumbling it's hard <laughs> You seem like a bit of a coffee snob. No, I'm like I'm a coffee purist in that. Like, I just like I was like, put it the folders in the drip. It's the same way like like donuts and beer. It's just like give me my cold Miller Lite in a can, or like my chocolate donut, no crap. Give me my coffee. Does, I, my coffee does this make him like a coffee snob? Snob? What is the? Or is I don't, it like yeah, a like a reverse snob? snob. Yeah. Like a luddite. Yeah. I think this is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what I was going to say is if instant coffee seems nostalgic to you, maybe it's because mm. you always had that as a kid, but if you always had this as a kid, or when you were, you know, teenager. Fancy-ass kid I'd be. Well, you, yeah, maybe. Uh, then you would find this nostalgic. What do you think? This is actually pretty good. It's not ah, really... Ah, um, he turns around. Like acidic. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty smooth. Yeah. I would definitely, I would, I would totally get this. You would? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you would too? Yeah, I guess despite it's easier your, to... Despite ca- your initial reservations? Yeah, it's easier to carry out like a few packs like this and pack out the little packaging it comes in than bringing a whole percolator with you, for sure. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Check out our show on iTunes. And while you're there, we'd love it if you'd leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about taxes, although I'm not sure why you would, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. You're in this thing where it's like legal, ethical, moral, because... I was lost and I've been